Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Lee, and I am back for today's episode with our lovely Aubrey Calvin, and we are continuing our conversation about Polly Murray this episode. This is the second part of our two-part Polly Murray episode, our first ever uh, episode where we split one person topic into two episodes because we just had that much to talk about. So, hi, Aubrey. How are you? How was your vacation that you took? Hi, Lee. I am doing great. My vacation was wonderful. Charleston, South Carolina, and this is not like an ad or anything, but the beaches there, amazing. The people, friendly. The food, so good. <laughs> but I still like Texas barbecue better than South Carolina barbecue. Ooh, strong Sorry. words. Sorry. That's just who I, mean, I am. Gonna... That's where I draw the line. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to I'm going to make some people pretty mad and say that I've had some really really good barbecue in California and that I liked barbecue in California better than the barbecue I had in Texas. So, uh, I guess don't at me, I listeners. See, I still I'm I'm one of those where I think that everyone wants to make their regional cuisine the best, but honestly, it all just tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> it's hey it's like i just like i just like food i mean i don't i just like food so it's delicious food that somebody made with love i'm happy to eat it yes yes <laughs> i mean as long as i don't have to cook i'm going to enjoy it but yes. no it was fun and it was great to get away and it was very friendly and i needed the beach and i think i want to live on the beach now Ooh, yes it was a good fun trip oh nice yeah, and we're we're recording this as uh, almost the last week of June, so almost the last bit of Pride. So I hope that everyone has had a really wonderful Pride Month. And as I said at the beginning, this is our part two, so we hope that you had a wonderful time listening to us talk about Polly Murray's upbringing, career, accomplishments, and all of that. We went through a very thorough bio of this person who was a monumental civil rights activist, lawyer, legal strategist, minister, teacher, many, many a um, thing. All, right, writer, <laughs> writer, all the things. poet. All yeah. the things, yes. So, you know, you, you can listen to this episode without having listened to the previous, but we would suggest if you have not listened to episode 36, you go back and listen to that one because you unfortunately won't have a lot of context for this one. Today, we're going to be laser focusing in on Polly Murray's multifaceted queerness. We're going to be talking about their relationships, their gender, and we're going to talk a little bit about how scholars and even Polly Murray themselves have struggled with how exactly to talk about them and their identity. We're also going to be tackling the question of Polly Murray's legacy and why they're somebody who, you know, has only recently 
come back into the conversation despite all of their accomplishments throughout their life. And so we are going to be at some point in this episode transitioning to my interview with Preston Mitchum, who up until uh, just a couple of days ago, as of us recording this, was the director of policy at Urge, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. He's actually moving on to work with the Trevor Project. So congratulations, Preston. And we're really excited to see what you have in store for the near future. And so we'll be talking, uh, you'll hear a conversation with me and him on Polly Murray's influence on the legal system and the ways in which Preston came to their story and the ways in which the legacy of Polly Murray can influence and is influencing current queer activists and lawyers and folks working for civil rights. So yeah, we're gonna have a little little funky format this episode, obviously, because this is a part two. So we're basically just gonna dive right into our "Why do we think they're gay?" segment because that's that's pretty much this, that's where this we're whole at. episode. Wait, that's um, where we're at. In <laughs> we've done everything else. That's where we're at. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did want to to start off with a little quote from Polly that I wanted to introduce because I feel like this is very emblematic of their identity, and we didn't get a chance to include it in the last episode. I found this fantastic quote. Uh, they said, "I have never been able to accept what." I believe to be an injustice. Perhaps it is because of this I am America's problem child and will continue to be. So let's uh let's talk a little bit about what goes into being America's problem child, if not for just being a thorn in the side of every racist and sexist out there. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Polly rarely discussed their romantic life. And they dedicated only two chapters in their entire biography to any references to such. Two, uh, two paragraphs. Uh, only two paragraphs. Paragraphs. Did I say chapters? You did. It's because we, it's because we wish so badly that there was more. It's paragraphs. They dedicated only two paragraphs in their entire biography. <laughs> and much of what we know about Murray's relationships and their own relationship to their gender, we know from historian Rosalind Rosenberg's documentation in her biography of Murray called Jane Crow, The Life of Polly Murray. Yeah, and, and one thing that we wanted to mention, if you go back to our previous episode, is there are concerns that Polly Murray's sexuality could have played a role ultimately in the NAACP's decision to not represent them during their case against UNC University of North Carolina when they were not able to get into the school, even though the school was not in compliance with laws that said they had to integrate if they didn't have an equivalent Black institution. At the time, you know, Murray often wore pants rather than the customary skirts of women, was open about their relationships with women. And so it's it's speculated that that could have also been an element that made the NAACP kind of draw away from representing them in, in a case. Yeah. I mean, you know, rec I mean, if you look at recently, the 21st century, the NAACP is like one of the biggest supporters of LGBTQ rights in terms of supporting equal rights for all. But if you go back to their origins in the 1950s, 40s, they were very much a respectability-based organization, mm. very much focused on men in charge, a type of certain persona that was put forward as far as leadership. And it was known to be a bit sexist in a lot of their practices, not the current NAACP, but they do have that history where a lot of Black women did feel like they weren't really able to achieve leadership positions like they would have liked to. They've made great progress since then. 
So we figured we'd kind of start by talking about their relationships and then kind of transition into talking about their gender. All of these things are kind of intertwined, especially with how Polly Murray kind of grappled with these things. But for the sake of clarity, we figured we'd break it out into these couple of different uh, zones, if you will. One of the things that we left out of our bio, because we wanted to kind of address it here, was Polly Murray actually got briefly married in 1930. They met a young man named William or Billy Wynn while they were living in Harvard, and they had a really brief courtship and secretly married and then had a a whole two-day honeymoon. Murray basically realized that it was, in, in their own words, a dreadful mistake and broke things off literally a few days later. Their marriage was officially annulled a few years afterwards, but it was basically a, oh, I have found this person, and I think that there's feelings here, and oh, wait, no, big mistake. Or could be one of those where that's what you're expected to do at the time when you get to a certain Compulsory heterosexuality, yeah. That's the expected norm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They wrote in their diary after ending the marriage, trying to reconcile their feelings on sex with men, Why is it when men try to make love to me, something in me fights? Yeah. Yeah, they had uh, basically what we know, um, at least from Rosenberg's biography and what material Murray donated at the end of their life. There are basically two significant romantic relationships in their life, and both of them were white women. The first we don't know a whole lot about, but Rosalind Rosenberg cites Murray's brief relationship with a woman named Peg Holmes, or Peggy Holmes, who was a counselor at the New Deal women's camp that Polly lived and worked at in 1934. And on our website, you'll be able to see there's a very, very cute picture of Polly Murray basically bridal carrying <laughs> Peggy Holmes. Um, and there was um, a little bit of scandal at the camp, apparently, <laughs> around their relationship. Yes. Well, um. I mean, between what, like, between between two people who presented as women, and of course, with being interracial, mm-hmm. scandal upon scandal. And yeah. The second one was Irene Renee Barlow, and Rosenberg describes Barlow as Murray's life partner, and their relationship lasted nearly 20 years until Barlow's death in 1973. Murray described Barlow as their spiritual mate and closest friend. They never lived together, but Barbara Lau, director of the Polly Murray Project at the Duke Human Rights Center, notes they had dogs together and they had cars together and they went on vacations together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically, even though they, they never actually lived in the same home together, they essentially acted as life partners. They, you know only really only lived in the same city infrequently but whenever they crossed paths whenever they were in New York together they yeah they had they had like co-ownership of some dogs and they went on vacations together and they were each other's absolute confidant uh they met at the Paul Weiss law firm that Murray began to work at after graduating from law school where Barlow was actually the office manager at the time in Song in a Weary Throat, Marie actually describes Barlow as as they first met her. And this is like one of our only references to maybe the way that they felt about Renee outside of just here's our friendship. Marie describes Barlow as tall and slender, and she carried herself with an air of quiet self-assurance. Her strong, attractive face and blue-green eyes radiated generosity and kindness. 
They also said that the chemistry of our friendship produced sparks of sheer joy. So a lot of lot of tenderness there. Yeah. That's such a that's a deep level of affection there. When you Mm -hmm. look at the idea of the chemistry of their friendship, I mean, you don't write things like that anymore. People don't write that anymore. I mean, I I always believe that you should be best friends with the person you're in a relationship with at the time, but that's because I married my best friend. (laughs) Um, I think the interesting thing about this relationship is that Murray was usually a pack rat, but they destroyed the letters between themselves and Barlow. So unfortunately, a lot of their story is unknowable. Questions of why Polly destroyed their letters, the questions of Murray's identity has actually had a lot to do with this and how Murray was disinclined to call themselves a lesbian. Was it due to their gender struggles or their racial struggles and the social stigma against their sexuality? Uh, Maybe it was a combination of both, most likely. There's just a lot we don't know about why Polly destroyed the letters and what was in the letters. Yeah, they wrote a piece called A Christian Friendship for Barlow's memorial booklet when Renee passed away. They had gotten very close to one another in the church and had a really spiritual relationship with one another. So Polly Murray wrote... As one of the many friends blessed by Irene Barlow's loving kindness, I was given both the high privilege and the pain of a Christian partnership of nearly 17 years in which two independent spirits meshed when necessary and disengaged when it no longer crucial to act as a unit. Murray's move into the priesthood in itself may have in part been motivated by their relationship with Barlow and the friendships that they garnered and gathered in the church together. Murray needed essentially like a new sense of direction in their grief after Barlow's death. Murray was very obviously and understandably devastated when Irene passed away from cancer. And because of Barlow's struggles with cancer, this is very likely one of the things that influenced Murray when they decided to enter the priesthood to minister to the sick and dying. That was one of their main focuses. Uh, and to kind of, you know, close out what we know about, about the relationship. About yeah. the relationship. The two of them are buried under the same headstone in a Brooklyn cemetery. And this is also the same cemetery that Polly Murray shares with their aunt Pauline, too. It's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that was like relationships. Uh, looking at their gender, we know Murray struggled with their sense of gender from an early age. Alternately describing themselves as a pseudo-hermaphrodite, a man in a woman's body, and boy-girl, among other phrases. And one of the things they wrote is, why do I prefer experimentation on the male side instead of attempted adjustment as a normal woman? Yeah, Karen Ross, Murray's great-niece, once said that, quote, Murray did feel like they had a man's brains in a woman's body, but was not very open about it. And again, we've we've changed the pronouns here in these quotes. As a child, Murray favored quote-unquote boys' clothes and boys' chores and was described by Aunt Pauline as, quote, a little boy girl. Uh, <laughs> Polly adopted the nickname Paul at the age of 15 and then played around with some other variations. They used Pete, they used Dude, which uh, dude? I would love to be called Dude. Dude Murray? That yeah, Dude like Murray. You, like like an like a actor in an old Western, like Dude Murray. 
as the sheriff. Dude Murray, outlaw. <laughs> um, yeah, so then they ended up, uh, you know, so they, they've shifted around and tried out a bunch of these different nicknames before settling on Polly at Hunter College and never went by Anna or Anna Pauline ever yeah, again. Yeah, <laughs> so just to remind people that Polly was not their given name. It was, yeah, right. so... So Polly became interested and identified with the sexologist Havelock Ellis's work on pseudo-hermaphrodites. That was his term at the time for folks who identified as genders opposite the one assigned at birth and became convinced they had secret male genitals or a testosterone imbalance. And they pursued medical interventions and explanations for their gender feelings. Yeah, uh, Murray's letter to Harvard actually gives a lot of insight into <laughs> the ways in which they were seeing their gender. When Harvard rejected them for their assigned sex, we have this response from them that in one way can be seen as a really kind of pithy remark, but it can also really give us a lot of insight. They actually wrote back to Harvard Gentlemen, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements, but since the way to change such has not been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal you to change your minds on this subject. Are you to tell me that one is as difficult as the other? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's like, <laughs> it's like it's like an excellent clapback, it, it's like but also it's like, like, okay, but I would. It's like you're rejecting me because I am classified as a woman, but I never said I was. That's your classification of me. Like, if that's all it takes, I mean, I'll change that part of me anyway, if that's all it takes to go to your stupid prestigious law school. I mean, if that's all it takes. <laughs> well, and that's, I think that's the big question, the crux of how do we classify Polly Murray? Obviously, there is some level of gender feels here, but, you know, how do we want to frame Polly's gender experience as one that exists outside or between a binary or one of a more trans-masculine or trans-man identity. It's tough It's tough to say for sure. Polly kind of vacillated during their life in the ways that they would describe their gender struggle. And there's a lot of, you know, we're going to get into this with how scholars talk about Polly Murray too, but they also... Sometimes they would write feeling some sort of mix of genders. They wrote, maybe two got fused into one with parts of each sex, male head and brain, female-ish body, mixed emotional characteristics. Uh, uh. But other times they identified as pretty firmly male. They would describe themselves as, quote, one of nature's experiments, a girl who should have been born a boy, and attributed their, quote, very natural falling in love with the female sex as a representation and manifestation of their masculinity, sometimes choosing to be seen not as someone of the queer community, but especially being seen and identifying as a heterosexual man. And some of that could be down to their own feelings on being labeled as queer and their own fears around what that means. We'll get into that. Yeah. On some hitchhiking trips early in their adulthood, Murray and a friend wore Boy Scout outfits, and Polly once reflected on their experience using the men's room and successfully passing. So that's a, I think just that little anecdote there, you know. A historian, Rosalind Rosenberg, categorizes Polly as a trans man, emphasizing the lack of terminology around trans experiences at the time. Yeah, I don't think that, um, I don't even think that, that the word transgender or transsexual was really in common use until like the 1960s. Yes, um, yes. So. 
And, you know, we know a lot of that history and language has been set back for decades because of, you know, Germans and the Nazis and the burning mm-hmm. of the gender clinic and all that. So we know a lot of the reason we don't know a lot of this is because of the oppression and erasing of records. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Brittany Cooper has a, a great quote. Murray preferred androgynous dress, had a short hairstyle, and may have identified as a transgender male today, but they lacked the language to do so at the time. While they lived openly in lesbian relationships for a time, their career, their communist politics, and respectability politics shut down their options. So it's the question of what could you have publicly identified as? Yes, and still make a living. <laughs> but, but we've got their their own personal like delight at some kind of what I would call like gender gender euphoria moments. <laughs> yes. Murray was delighted when wearing their clerical collar, uh, and they were often mistaken for Father Murray, according to a one scholarly work. Uh, there's a there's a photo album that Murray put together in the 1930s that they titled "The Life and Times of an American" called Polly Murray which included a whole bunch of photos of themselves that they included with a bunch of great captions, including the dude, the vagabond, the crusader, the imp, among others. And it feels like it's it feels like it's an album of gender performativity. And uh, we've included a couple of these these images. Um, but we have from an article that we read a really great quote about one of these images that is captioned the imp. In the photo, Murray as the imp smiles mischievously, looking away from the camera and back over their shoulder, a sprightly androgynous figure, hard to pin down, perhaps on the run from some recent troublemaking. The figure of the imp remained an important one in Murray's repertoire. Disruptive, incorrigible, confounding expectations, and laughing all the while. I love that. Just describing my my gender is imp. How does that resonate with you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it like it reminds me of like non-binary people describing themselves as raccoons and trash cans or like gremlins or, you know, fog on a windy night as witches fly through the sky. Like just weird, like existential strangeness. My gender is imp. But the amount of like NB gremlin memes that I've seen (laughs) that that gives me those same kind of feelings. I gotta be honest, I don't know what to make of these photos. And and I, and I say that because I am having a hard time trying to get a handle on Polly's personality. They're so private about so many things. And they're very, you know, kind of closed off on about a lot of their lives. But then you look at these photos and there's a level of freedom there. I don't know. Or a level of, I don't want to say playfulness because they smile in a lot of their pictures. It's just, I am having a very difficult time wrapping my head around them as a person. Like what they would be like just to hang out with and drink coffee with or tea I'm trying to wrap my head around that and I'm having trouble. I mean, I think Drury's explanation of them as, you know, smiling mischievously, mischief is probably a good term for them. I mean, especially if you think about things like, I'd imagine that Polly Murray is, and (laughs) the way that they approached everything in their life is very much along the lines of, you know, John Lewis and good trouble. Yes, yes. (laughs) I, uh, to, I mean, you know, they said it themselves, I mean, I, America's problem child. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you want to talk about their pursuit of medical intervention? 
Uh, sure. One of the reasons why we personally are pretty set in our describing of Polly Murray as having some sort of trans experience and not necessarily just not wanting to call themselves a lesbian because of various societal elements is because they actually really went to the length of pursuing medical intervention to change or explain how they were feeling about their body and their attractions. They started to keep newspaper clippings about various experiments with hormones as a way of changing sexual identity. In their middle age, Murray tried to obtain gender-affirming treatment and hormone therapy, uh, unfortunately unsuccessfully, as it barely existed pre-1960s, especially for female-to-male-identified folks or folks along that spectrum. In 1938, Murray actually asked a doctor to test their endocrine levels, hoping to find some sort of hormone imbalance as explanation, some sort of biological reason for their feelings. And unfortunately, came away from that incredibly disappointed because the results were regular. Their results showed that their quote-unquote female hormones were regular and their male or testosterone results were low, even for someone assigned female at birth. We do know that they asked a surgeon during their appendectomy to check for evidence of masculine genitalia in their abdominal abdominal cavity and reproductive system. And again, they were disappointed to hear the results were nothing out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. It's like they were looking for a medical reason in their body to explain who they were in their mind and their heart. Mm -hmm. And not just when it came to their internal sense of their gender, but also their attraction to women too. They were really, really kind of confounded by that as well. So their relationship to the queer community is is kind of murky. And they had this kind of disinclination to identify as a lesbian for multiple reasons. Gender, but also we really wanted to bring up this argument that a lot of scholars talk about and are consistently going back and forth on when talking about Murray, is did they identify a certain way, a certain way with men and not as a lesbian or with a queer female identity um, because of societal stigma against queerness. I personally see a lot of resonance with trans identity and experience, and I don't want to invalidate that, but we did think that it was important to bring up these arguments um, because we have a lot of different quotes from them about how they thought about queerness itself. Yeah, I mean, I know you have one scholar, as Schultz, saying, by way of explaining why they believed they were a heterosexual man, Murray noted that they didn't like to go to bars, wanted a monogamous relationship, and were attracted exclusively to extremely feminine women. All of that is less a convincing case for their convoluted heterosexuality than for their culture's harsh assessment of the possibilities of lesbianism. And that's from the scholar Schultz. Yeah, it's um it's 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 really murky. I don't know. I I really struggled with how to kind of include this cuz part of me, you know, goes like, "Oh, people are are so quick to, you know, make sure that they include folks in in a lesbian identity and say that, you know, not including them in that is homophobia." But I I think that is it, it is important because we don't have this person 
to speak on their own behalf and because there's a lot of racial and social and frankly mental health stigma that was going on in Murray's life at the time when it came to their relationship to queerness. Uh, Murray, quote, explained to doctors that they did not share a bond with homosexuals. And uh, another quote from an article that we read It says, compounding Murray's sense of homosexuality as abnormal and informing their turn toward biological sources of what they called their conflicts was the fact that Murray had a particular fear of the psychological weakness attributed to homosexuals by medical doctors, members of the clergy, and the press. So it it may not be that Murray declined to identify as a lesbian or queer due explicitly to their gender, but also compounding factors of their own perception of what queerness and the like meant in society. I think it's important to really include that context of at this time, homosexuality was really medicalized, as well as, you know, Polly had their own history of being afraid of being considered mentally unfit or unstable with their father's illness. I mean, right? if you, yeah, if you go back to the first episode, we talked about, you know, their father died in a hospital institutionalized because of his mental health difficulties. And so it's not I don't think it's uncommon for them to think that that's not something I want to be associated with, especially when the message of the day was homosexuality was an illness, a sickness, something to be cured out of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think you also have to recognize that it was not uncommon. And I can only, most of what I've looked at as, as trans women is that for a lot of trans women early on, when they transitioned and they considered their medical transition done, they would just consider themselves heterosexual women with mm-hmm. no real ties to a queer community because they went on to live just heterosexual straight lives, stealth, if you will, to use the term. So there's not always that relationship to the community after you've transitioned. Mm-hmm. And so I think yeah. that's one thing that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, for everybody else that we've discussed on this podcast that could be one of multiple identities, I think that Polly Murray's been one that has, in, you know, just the last couple of years, we've really been seeing a lot of shifting to how people talk about them. And so I think for, for this show, you know, I don't want to make an equivocal statement about what they were, because we, there's, I, I can say, you know, that I personally think that this is what's going on. And this is why we chose to use they, them pronouns as kind of a, a gap or, a, you know, to bridge the gap. But yeah. um, I thought it was important for us to bring up the fact that, hey, most of the articles that you're going to find that discuss, specifically discuss their queerness, you know, don't come to a, this conclusion. And also, you know, some of them may come to the conclusion that, you know, hey, this may have been the result of some societal stigma. If Polly identified as male, you know, uh, it could be a way to distance themselves from the label of homosexuality and thus in need of psychiatric treatment if if there was like a biological reason for them feeling this way you know they could be they'd be quote-unquote normal which i think is really important considering murray's big fear of mental weakness so to say being their inheritance i mean if you combine the race part on top of it there are so many Mm -hmm. black trans people of that era that just once they transitioned they just didn't tell people and they just there are some that are coming out now 
that said, oh, I've been trans this whole time, or there are a few, there's a model who stopped modeling because they were threatened to be outed. So they went, because when you add the race part on top of it, I mean, it's hard enough. So, I mean, we don't want to diagnose or say we know what Polly was going through because we'll never know. This is just us talking about possibilities. We don't know. We're here to aggregate all of the arguments and data. As I (laughs) remind my students, all I ever do is ask questions. I'll never provide you with answers to situations. I'm not going to solve the problems of the world. I'll just give you questions about them, and then you come up with your own answer. And that's what I'm doing here is, these are questions we have. (laughs) I love that. So just, I mean, to kind of wrap up this discussion a little bit, we did want to go a little bit into their mental health struggles around this. It seems like their own mental health, emotional distress, mental health struggles did tie back directly to their conflicts over their gender and sexuality. Starting around the age of 19, they wrote that, quote, this conflict rises up to knock me down at every apex I reach in my career. This is something that they wrote in their diary. And so they did see it as a as something that just continually kept coming up and they didn't know how to grapple with. Yeah. They wrote to a doctor, anything you can do to help me will be gratefully appreciated because my life is somewhat unbearable in its present phase. Mm-hmm. Oh, that hurts my heart. I know. I just identify with that so much. I hurt. Oh. Um, they did, however, like, potentially confide frequently in their aunt in their aunt Pauline about their struggles. And this is from uh, Talia Bridges McMahon, the producer of a new documentary on Murray. There's a letter when Polly is at Howard Law School. It seems like Polly was probably seeking help for physical health problems and sometimes for mental health problems. There's a letter that I came across that Polly wrote to Aunt Pauline while all of this is happening. Polly would be in their early 30s in terms of age. Polly is writing to Aunt Pauline to say, The thing that happens is happening again. And Polly specifically says the thing that you call my boy-girl personality is getting me in trouble. To see that Polly had someone to write to about it. I had been working under the belief, and we say I is, you know, the producer, Talia. I had been working under the belief that Polly was really isolated when it came to that. To see that Aunt Pauline was still such a close confidant into adulthood was just so amazing and reassuring. I wish we all had an Aunt Pauline. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, later on in their life, they had kind of reconciled some parts of their identity. Near the end of their life, amid their battle with pancreatic cancer in the early 80s, they ended up donating a whole bunch of their files to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, including their own personal notes and diary entries that dealt specifically with their gender and sexuality. So even though we don't get that information in their biographies, they did end up donating all of that material. And that's a lot of where Rosalind Rosenberg gets her material from, as well as interviewing other people in Polly's life. There's an author of a book called Murray, The Dream is Freedom, Sarah Azaransky, who writes, they chose to keep those in their archives. That choice is important, I think. So, you know, it seems like they knew at least that this would be really significant information and significant information in the ways that future people in the future would talk about them and their legacy, even if they the majority of their life that they were around were a pretty private person. I feel for them so hard, you know, yeah. I do. 
And I, I hope that in the end they found peace with who they were. And I hope that they found some level of comfort and some level of acceptance and joy about their great uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sorry that they didn't get the praise they deserved when they were alive because they really are deserving of a, a lot of praise in a lot of different activist areas. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, it's a perfect way to kind of transition into the conversation that I had with Preston is why we know now the story of Polly Murray, but why were they forgotten? Why did they, you know, at the peak of their career kind of still get sidelined into the background? What do we make of Polly Murray's legacy? And what work are they inspiring today? So let's hear a little bit about of that interview. Yeah, let's listen to Preston talk a little bit about Polly. Before we dive into our conversation with Preston, I just wanted to give everyone a heads up that there will be a brief discussion of sexual abuse and sexual assault near the end of the interview. So if that is something that you would like to avoid to take care of yourself while listening to this episode, check our show notes. You'll be able to find the exact time codes that you can skip. I'm talking to Preston Mitchum, who is the Director of Policy at URGE, which is Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. And there he shapes local, state, and federal strategies and reproductive justice policies that center the voices and leadership of young people throughout the South and the Midwest. And today I've brought him on to talk about Polly Murray. We met a few months ago and I really wanted to get an opportunity to talk with him about his thoughts on how Polly Murray and their work, and we'll talk about pronouns as well, influenced his own work. So hi, Preston. How are you? Thank you for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk about Polly Murray today. Yes, I'm very excited to talk with you. We uh, we did a panel at the JLBT Historical Society back in July, and you mentioned Polly Murray as one of your inspirations. We we talked about like significant Black queer folks in history, and Polly immediately jumped to your mind. So I I I was like, Hey Preston, do you want to do you want to hop on to this queer history podcast and chat? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I gave a little bit of the briefest of bios for you, but could you talk to some folks who are listening about a little bit about yourself, the work you're you're currently doing, and how you kind of came to policy and law and reproductive justice? Absolutely, I'm happy to. So I'm a Black queer attorney, activist, and advocate hailing from the Midwest and living in Washington, D.C., where I've been for the past decade As you mentioned, my work is at URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, as well as an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where I teach LGBTQ health law and policy. Uh, I've been doing policy work for maybe the past eight to 10 years. And how I got there was pretty unique. Uh, I went to law school, so I have my law degree and I have my advanced law degree from American University, Washington College of Law, uh, where I really started studying gender in law. So really the intersection of race and racism and sex and sexuality and how the law and policy systems impact all of that, many times to the disadvantage of many marginalized communities. While there is the first time I actually heard the name Polly Murray in my feminist jurisprudence class, and I was blown away by this Hmm. person who I've never heard of before 2012. And always, whenever I don't hear of someone 
who shaped so much of the legal system as we know it today and of the Constitution and of civil rights, I'm always curious why. Why don't we know of this person? Who institutionally is the reason or why is the reason systemically why we may not know particular people from Pauli Murray to Bayer Rustin, right, to many other queer leaders who we really should be honoring every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I should say, I should also say the reason why I decided not to go into litigation and what really steered me to policy work was I was, I was never a stranger to believing that policy is the proof positive and silver bullet to solving the lives and getting liberties to everyday people. Um, however, I also knew litigation, solely doing litigation wasn't that way. Um, right. And I felt in my work that policy was some of the quickest ways to help margin, historically marginalized communities. And so, and to be fair, we need everything, right? We need policy advocacy. We need mass mobilization and grassroots organizing. We need court systems reform and to unrig the courts from uh, white supremacist ideology. We need communications and culture shift. We need all of it. And for mm-hmm. me, what felt the most Preston-like <laughs> and similar <laughs> to even Polly Murray was really what it means to look at law and policy in a way that actually centers the unique voices and experiences of so many Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks. Um, and of course, LGBTQ folks, non-binary folks, and, and women and girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you you mentioned uh, already while you were in school, you learned about Polly Murray, because I was going to ask how and, and when did you first hear about them? Um, before we get too far into things, one of the questions I wanted to kind of broach with you is, you know, what can Polly tell us about the limits of identity and language when trying to speak about someone's gender from a lens using terms that might not have been accessible or acceptable to them. In the process of putting together this episode, we've been struggling to decide what pronouns to use for Polly. And in some of the writing that I've seen you talking about Polly, you've described them alternatively as as various different things, including a lesbian. I wanted to gauge what your thoughts are on kind of how we talk about such a figure. I think this is like the, the most interesting and difficult question when it comes to speaking about our historical figures, idols, what have you, based on language that may not have been accessible at the time when they were living. Mm. Um, and so I think that if you actually did speak about Polly Murray then, when, when they were living, one of the things that most people, I imagine, would say was that Polly Murray was lesbian. Right. Um, based on the language that we knew it to be, or at least like LGBTQ, whatever. the, And even then, we probably wouldn't even say Q, right? Right. Um, <laughs> I've gone on my own personal journey um, from what I have considered Polly, um, what language felt appropriate for someone like Polly, right? And where I land currently is using they, them pronouns, and then also just using the language queer, mm-hmm. not to specifically couch Polly in, in a term that they may not have used. And I would say that has turned around for me pretty recently, right? When you think of all the historical figures, when, or not even the historical figures, frankly, when you think of the historical recounts of mm-hmm. Polly, what you usually see is, you know, Polly shaped the women's rights movement, right? Which for many people that happened because of Polly's identification as a woman, or at least again, as the language that we had accessible at the time. Uh, when people talk about Polly and, you know, being the first something, right? They say Polly was the first black first, woman. Right. Um, or like, you know, something that from to graduate number one 
at Howard University School of Law, when you speak of the reverend status, talk about being the first black woman, right? So like, I think there's a struggle there that, that many of us are figuring out when it comes to when you read someone's notes and all the assessments that they make about their own selves and being possibly denied like testosterone or other gender affirming care. It's, 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 it's a struggle, right? And you also don't know enough unless you were connected with Polly when they were alive. All of us, quite frankly, are kind of guessing. And we're doing our best to honor their reality at the time based on our own knowledge that we have today. And so that's why even for me, I find it personally a little unfair to get frustrated with people who still use she, her pronouns for Polly. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in truth, all of us are using our best educated, affirming thoughtfulness as we're discussing Murray's legacy. All, All the while that doesn't mean that we may not be misgendering Murray. Um, And so, again, I think it's complicated. And I think anyone who says that it's not complicated is not fully telling the (laughs) truth. (laughs) I think it's going to always be complicated discussing someone's gender and sexuality when there's not a clear answer saying, this is exactly who I am, right? And when they're not here to advocate for themselves as well. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like we're all doing the best that we can do. You know, I think now people will consider, you know, polyqueer or non-binary, among other things. Right. But I think if I really if I really honored Polly and doing a deep analysis of who they were during their time living with us, you know, I think I, I would have to believe that Mary would not want us, frankly, to fight over that. What I believe that Mary would want us to believe is recognizing that there are historically marginalized communities of which they are a part of, and honoring the fact that laws and policies were still created to uplift who they were, regardless of the terms that we use, right, for, for right. them or otherwise. Uh, I would say while still, while still doing our best and our damnedest to still honor who they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, why are we splitting hairs over language? Like, there's there's work to do, <laughs> I think, was exactly. generally what they, would, and, and, what they would get down to. Exactly. And the truth is, you know, people may not like what I have to say about this particular thing, but the truth is, none of us know. Like, right, like, there, there, there are so many readings that could, that we could find different things to allow, like, particular language, right? There's so many things. Like, when I learned about Polly Murray in my feminist jurisprudence class in 2012, like I mentioned earlier, I guarantee you my professor at the time was not trying to dishonor Murray by using she, her pronoun for, mm-hmm. for Murray. I, like, I can, I can guarantee you that. And, you know, I think, so I think it's a, it's a reckoning, right? And it's us wrestling with more, and, and frankly, it's a privileged conversation, because in many ways, we're wrestling with language that we know to be today. Right. Right. And, and not things that were more accessible. Like right now, we use queer. Many younger people, many Black people, many brown people use queer to identify the realities of who we are. But if you mention this to some of our like queer, Black queer fathers and forefathers and, and folks who are maybe non-binary among other communities and identities, I guarantee you they will be offended that we've decided to reclaim this term. Mm. Right. So again, I think like there's a reality that we have to wrestle with where all of us are right, all of us are wrong, right? (laughs) And the answer is somewhere in the middle. (laughs) 
I mean, I, I, I can't think of anything more queer than that. <laughs> it's kind of like there's there's like a saying, something that's like the, like the most Jewish thing is an argument. Um, like, I feel like that that kind of goes along with with queerness as well is yeah. the very nature of queerness and the language that we use constantly changing around it is in itself a very queer mood. Um, I, th- I think that's that's really great. Uh so tell me, tell me a little bit about what you know of Polly's story and what you think are the most significant milestones in their life and, and why do they inspire you? So if there is anything, I have to just, I can actually speak on, you know, so many things about Mary, but there is one thing that I think is important to mention is how bold they were mm. and how progressive they were before their time. And how much of that reality, unfortunately, is the reason why people are just now learning about Murray to this day. In fact, you know, for your listeners, I'm not sure if anyone has watched Amend on Netflix, but it's one of the best documentaries I've seen in a while, frankly, that talks about the intersection of so many of our realities. And it's a documentary about the, about the 14th Amendment. You know, so people can tell you about, you know, the First Amendment and what those freedoms mean. People may even be able to tell you a little bit more about the Second Amendment, et cetera. But the truth is, the 14th Amendment is what's gotten so many of us our rights um, in the United States, especially if you're a part of a historically marginalized community. So from Black people to immigrants to, you know, women and girls to LGBTQ and non-binary people to the idea of marriage equality and employment discrimination, and, you know, the, the, the legacy of, and the vestiges of, of slavery. All of the things that are rooted in, like, due process clause and equal protection clause and the privileges and immunities clause, all of that came from the 14th Amendment. And so I was even surprised that they did a small segment of polymery in that. Hmm. But I really, even though it was small, I appreciated it, right? I just watched it the other day. And even though there was a small segment, my appreciation was there because I think it's at least a way of trying to make Murray a little bit more mainstream by honoring their legacy that, you know, with all respect to obviously Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, much of her, Ginsburg, like political legal framing came from Murray. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the fact that it mentions it in that documentary to me made me smile because there's at least, they're like, you know, yeah, we had a queer black person who actually is the one (laughs) and the reason why we know the 14th Amendment and how we frame it for women's equality and gender equality was based in the legal idea of Murray. Um, And so, again, there are many things I can say about Murray, but the one thing is just how brilliant Murray was. And how they were describing the legal framework, right? Because in their idea, if you could use the 14th Amendment to talk about equality between races, why couldn't you use the 14th Amendment to talk about equality between and among genders? Right. Right? Like, and so, you know, why is that now if you discriminate against one of the basis of gender, that's not suspect? And then when you really think about it, Mary is really the reason based on the law why we even really know about intersectionality. And even Kimberly Crenshaw who coined the term in the late 80s would say that, right? Mm-hmm. Emily Crenshaw has always stated that even though she coined the term based on a legal case called the Graffenried and Employment Discrimination, that it existed so long before her coining of the term. And you see that based on Polly Murray's 
again, the, their legal framing around the intersection of how racism and sexism meet. When mm-hmm. you hear Murray talking about Jane Crow and how, it, how like, anti-Blackness looked different if you were a Black man and a Black woman. And so mm-hmm. I think, like, without that powerful undertaking of the Constitution and the legal idea, we wouldn't know the 14th Amendment to apply to gender and sexuality in the way that we know today. And I should also say that what made Murray so bold and daring and progressive and whatever other positive affirming statement you could use to describe <laughs> someone's mindset, Murray knew people disagreed with them, completely knew that. Right. You know, when they were in class at Howard Law School, one of the things that they did was made a bet with a professor around <laughs> before Brown v. Board, right? Like, that was one of the things because they were like, no, we have to tackle segregation and integration differently. The way you all are tackling it is incorrect, right? And they said that segregation would be overturned. I, be- I cannot think of the actual time frame they said, maybe 25 years, but it actually was cut in half of that time. And it was based on, again, this idea from Murray. Mm-hmm. And so I think, again, we, have, we owe so much to Polly Murray. We owe so much. So many of our rights and liberties and ideas of what we can attack, could attack by the Constitution and the rights that we receive and are affirmed and the access that many of us can have is because of Polly Murray, right? So because I, I can talk about many things, of course, but that's the one reality, right, that they have set the tone and standard for much of what we know about discrimination and the arguments that are currently being made to this day to the Supreme Court and other courts across the country. Right. Yeah. Just with the recent Supreme Court case that was talking about how, you know, discrimination based on sex can extend to transgender people like Mm -hmm. that in in itself just goes back to Polly and Brown v. Board. I really like what you said about just like, like so much of what we're dealing with right now, we owe to Polly. And that leads me into my next question is how specifically does the work that they did and what aspects of their life and work have personally resonated with you, both as a Black man and as a queer person? Speaking of that, you know, kind of intersectional approach. I know it probably sounds like an overstatement to say everything, (laughs) but it's true. (laughs) I deeply believe I owe everything to Murray. Even even before knowing of Murray, right, and knowing the reality of who I was in law school as a Black queer person, as a Black queer man specifically, I knew what I really wanted to tackle was whatever I was going to do in my life, I was going to help folks. I was going to help people who the system pushed to the margins. Mm. And even before I knew who Murray was, I think they knew who I was, right? I think they knew that there were going to be many lawyers and budding lawyers who were going to be back and queer, who were really going to fight this white supremacist system that we know called the bar. I, I think that they knew that we were going to come behind them and they were really planting the seeds for how we could still fully be ourselves in this, again, this very white dominated cis-centered, straight-centered career field. So when I say I owe everything, right? Like, again, even though it hasn't even been a decade before hearing this name, I know I owe so much to them, right? When I talk to my students and other young people in communities of color, one thing that I always talk about consistently is intersectionality. And again, I know I'll probably mention this 
several more times because <laughs> intersectionality is such an important concept because people have misused it so much over the right. past couple of years, right? People have used intersectionality to mean that we're counting people and that we're counting identities, but that's not what it is. It's about the, what I would consider it like the multiplicity effect. So you are part of multiple marginalized identities. And if you are, how do different systems impact who you are? right? Based on race and gender and sex and sexuality, based on age and disability, based on economic discrimination and, de and, and degradation, based on your immigration status, right? It's based on so many things. And when those things compound, systems often negatively impact you more and more, right? So it's not just counting, right? And it's not oppression Olympics that some people would use. There are literal effects that happen when you are part of marginalized communities, globally for sure, but especially based on American capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so Murray knew that. Murray knew that. And they were trying to reframe and refine the legal system in a way that would treat our needs and experiences first, because they knew that we would be impacted negatively by these laws and policies first. And so, again, Murray shaped so much of my legal career, which is why I talk all the time now about, again, intersectionality and what that means try to rewrite laws that center the needs of marginalized communities, push back in coalition spaces when I hear people making comments that feel anti-Black, anti-queer, anti-trans, like any marginalized identity, like it is my, what's the word I want to use? It is my, it's, it's me, I should just say, it's, it's within me mm -hmm. to actually make that known um, and to call that out and call it in and to sometimes be the bad person in the room, right? because I realized that this is all above and beyond me. This is not just about me. This is about the people who are coming after me, right? This, that was about the people who were coming after Murray. Murray actually knew that everyone in the legal field who was black was not straight. They were just not cisgender. And then I think now the reality is that we have to continue to create the space for black, queer, trans and non-binary attorneys to, to thrive, right? And the last thing I'll say before moving on is that one of the things that I have often heard is, you know, people love to give the percentage. Um, and I'll say this gently, right? Black people, black attorneys love to give the percentage of how many attorneys are black in the legal field, right? Because it's infinitesimal. It is extremely small. But rarely do many of those same attorneys actually talk about the number of black LGBTQ attorneys. Hmm. Because if you think the numbers are small for black attorneys broadly, what we're not saying is most of them are still straight. Most right. of them are still fit. Like, let's talk about who are we actually making sure is reputable in our field, right? If we're putting restrictions on clothing and attire and the way people show up, and if we're putting restrictions on how people speak, if we're putting restrictions that, you know, you would only be acceptable if you went to a tier one or two law school, right? Like, mm -hmm. those are the things and those are the reasons why only certain Black attorneys can be successful in our field. So it's not enough, again, to just talk about like the marginalization and the marginalized identities. What about those who are within those margins, right? Like that, that is what Murray knew. And that is a legacy that I hope to continue for them every day. Hmm. I that's that's so important. And it's really it's really impactful to hear that you you carry that with you in your work as you as you go on and you're thinking about future generations. And, you know, the generations are just going to get more queer more black, more brown, and just 
you know, leave leave the the dinosaurs of the past in the dust. Hopefully, um, <laughs> why why do you think it's important specifically to look to history? for ways that we can interpret and influence the future, kind of expanding on on this idea that folks before have laid the groundwork, how do we implement that going into the future by and still acknowledging the work that has come before? Yeah, you know, there is an expression that I do think we say, and that some of us may not really sit with, is, you know, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. But not only is that a cliche statement, it's a factual one, right? You know, the the truth is, if we don't know who our queer ancestors are and our trans ancestors are, um, if we don't know who these people are, then we really are going to be fighting the same fight without knowing that we are. Mm-hmm. Like, and without knowing what strategies they use, without knowing the thoughtfulness that they put in place and how creative they were, right? Like, we, we have to know that history. It reminds me, like, that's why I always speak about not, that's why I always speak about Stonewall last when it mm-hmm. comes to police riots, right? When it comes to police riots of, like, the LGBTQ community or police violence, I should say, of the LGBT community. You know, I'll talk about Black Cat. I'll talk about Compton Cafeteria. I'll talk about all those things, right? And of course, I'll talk about Stonewall because it was such a pivotal moment in shaping, you know, anti-violence from police and the queer, trans, and non-binary community. But it wasn't the first one. Right. And so I think, like, you know, if historically we thought that that was the first one and we thought that there weren't other symptoms that created that ultimate medical condition, Right. Then we would think that we didn't even have any violence before and that it was the LGBT community who were the irrational ones. Right. And we're like, no, we were the ones who were just tired and fed up because so many moments across the country led to that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we don't know our history, we don't know about Marsha P. Johnson. We don't know about Sylvia Rivera. We don't know about Miss Major. We don't know about Flawless Sabrina. Right. Like we don't know about those people until we actually know our history. And the reason why I love history so much is I think about how many Black griots we have, how many Black people we know who could not read and write, who who literally, if they did learn to read and write, they would not only be criminalized, but they could be killed, right? And they still found ways through tradition to pass down their stories, yeah. right? So that's why I really love when I talk about like Black communities and Indigenous communities who didn't write a lot of it down. Most of what we know about our own history has been oral. And then they've been translated then to like written text, some of it. But most of what we know is oral. I was talking to some friends the other day after a meeting. And I said, you know what I love about cooking so much as a Black person, frankly, is that like I'm from the Midwest, but there's so many Southern roots for Black people in the Midwest that we all kind of cook the same. Hmm. Right. It isn't written down. We tend to cook the same because, in my honest opinion, it is a way that we're connecting to ancestors who we've never met or heard of. Right. Like the fact that I have not I've grown up in the Midwest in Ohio and I still cook to this day, probably a couple times a month, like collard greens with neck bones and <laughs> mac and cheese and, you know, all the good fixes that people receive at, like during holiday time that for black communities we fix often because it's just the way we show love and affection. Mm. To me, that is history. Right. It may not be in a textbook, but it's something that through some kind of like osmosis <laughs> that we picked it up. And <laughs> right. so like I love history for that very reason. And I think, again, like I want to go back to that statement, like if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Because, again, it's more than just a cliche. It's something that is so 
critical to not only know who we are, but whose we are, right? Who do we come from? Who are the people that we come from? And so I'm always going to love history. I'm always going to love the moments of history. And that is why I love people now learning about Murray. That's why I am so thankful that I learned of them in 2012 and why every day I learn new (laughs) things about Murray. (laughs) Every day. Well, and it's so, and it's, things become so much more expansive and interesting when you kind of deconstruct the idea of history as more than what was in the textbook that I learned when my history teacher in high school droned on about this war and this white man. And it's when, when you look into history that is being told by folks who, you know, are, are of the communities that experienced it, not just, not necessarily from the official record of those who went through and colonized and stepped on people throughout and were the ones who wrote the history. I I think that changes a lot of people's thoughts about what they they consider. For sure. Because (laughs) history history is often told by those who won at the time, Mm -hmm. right? So it it reminds me of like, even when you think of the Confederacy, right? Even though the Confederacy lost, they still retold a story in a way that now some people look at like the Confederate flag as heritage without even associating that heritage to mean anti-blackness and right. slavery and KKK, right? Like, so we really do have to reframe history because not only are we doomed to repeat it, that means that we can actually be sold a false promise or a false narrative and believe it just because it was told by the people who won or at least who believe that they won. Right. Or that, you know, facts were just omitted. You know, like the, the, I mean, one of the things we come up with, we come up against constantly in doing this show is the countless amount of figures that aren't necessarily new to us, but the fact that they were queer is new to us. Like, you know, learning about Frida Kahlo and the fact that she was bisexual and, you know, the fact that we're still seeing articles that don't mention Sally Ride being a lesbian and her, you know, being survived by her partner and the ways in which just casual omission is an act of violence and erasure, yes, especially for absolutely. queer folks. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it doesn't, because it doesn't teach us that we have people before us. Mm. Right. And you know, there, there is this, there's absolutely this idea, unfortunately, that, that this is new. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it reminds me when marriage equality finally passed in 2015, you know, people thought it was so fast, right? Like, oh my gosh, the gays said they wanted to get married and then the next day they got married. And it's like, wow, <laughs> do we not know our history? Right. Right. Because we were fighting for 50 years at that point, you know, that, at least that we know <laughs> at right. that point based on certain things, right? Like, and again, if you don't know our history, then you would be stuck into believing that, oh my gosh, you know, maybe we, maybe we did move too fast. You know, I've heard queer people say that, you know, maybe we did move too fast. And I'm like, no, don't let them win. Do not let them shape your reality. Yeah. I love that. Do not let them, do not let them shape your reality. I mean, and, and also queer versions of marriage have existed since the middle ages. So I don't know what anybody's talking about. You know, you have you also have <laughs> pirates and sailors who marry each other on ships, metatolage, you know, like that was one of our first topics. So it's exactly. it's always really fun, you know, to especially, you know, folks who are like, oh, this this all these new pronouns, blah, blah, blah. It's like you do know that singular they has been in use longer than singular you, right? 
Right. <laughs> the thing is, they don't know that because exactly. they don't know history. <laughs> you know, like it reminds me of like all this backlash, you know, against, you know, non-binary people. And I remember someone actually was shocked when they were like, oh, you know, I didn't know that historically when, when people were, people were, wore heels or were designed for heels, it was actually designed for men mm. originally. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and they're just, but for them, that, that means something else. Right. Like, and it's, and it's quite shameful. Right. There are sometimes, I mean, that's why the phrase ignorance is bliss is such a truth. Because even for my own reality, like I remember when I didn't know more information and I was better, I was happier then. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> it wasn't much that I was pushing back on. Just just you know? blissfully well, engaging with media. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Going back to like shows that you enjoyed in, in the nineties, you're like, oh wow, this is Yes. There are some shows now I have to watch and I have to already prepare myself to be like, I know that this is probably terrible, but you know, at the time it was funny. And now that, now that we know more, it's not funny. Right. And I think that that's okay because that means we're all growing and learning, right? Even the people who acted on the shows and even some of those script writers, right? Like, you know, hopefully we're all growing and learning. I can't, I can't watch an older episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit without cringing severely Ooh. Ooh, yeah. um, about the way that they talk about anything, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, but, you know, if we, if we don't look to those, we can't know what to evolve into in the future. Um, speaking exactly. of, of media, uh, I like to ask this of everybody that I talk to. If you could see any queer historical figure's life story adapted for TV or film, if not Polly Murray, which, you know, we all want to see that, who who would you choose? Who are you you itching to see kind of a biopic about? That's such a good question, because I will say the people who the people who I would name, I think I've had something done in some respect, but I don't know if I believe that they've been done well. So I'll definitely name and rename Polly Murray for sure, Lorraine Hansberry, Fire Rustin. I actually would love people to do a deeper dive on the sexuality of Malcolm X. James Baldwin, I think, has many things out for sure. But again, I don't know if it's been a solid job on speaking about the queerness of Baldwin. Um, Audrey Lord, so many, so many people actually. And there and, and frankly, I think I think I can name many black people, like queer or not, because just the way black stories are retold it are frankly are terrible. Unless there's like black people behind directing and producing and editing. I've just seen some really poorly done work. Um, and so yeah, so but those are the people who immediately come to mind because I think that those are the stories who we're starting to tell a bit more but I still don't think they've been done as much justice as I would like to have seen. Right. Yeah. At, at least, you know, some, some elements of their identity are being kind of just pushed off to the side for, for the sake of narrative. And we really got to make sure that, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing all of, all of these people. I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with the, um, there's a, there's an upcoming film that will be looking into Bayard Rustin, I think, that just recently got announced. I know there was a new documentary from Murray that I still have not had a chance to see. So I'm interested in watching that as well. So we're kind of coming up on the end of our time here. So I wanted to ask you, what projects are you working on right now? If there's anything new and exciting in the pipeline, what is at the forefront of your your work? 
Yeah. Right now, a lot of my work is on exploring youth abortion access, actually. Mm. So making sure that young people, including those under the age of 18, have access to abortion care. So often we spend so much time talking about restrictions for abortion care and notoriously leave out young people, regrettably so. And so, you know, um, Urge and a few other organizations and partners are really working on at the state and federal level, ensuring that young people under 18 especially have expanded abortion access, whether it's looking at insurance and explanation of benefits, uh, whether it's looking at ending parental involvement laws, where across the country in the vast majority of states, if you're a person under 18, a parent has to either parent or guardian um, has to either consent to you having an abortion or just be notified, which it, which is an insurmountable barrier for many young people. Um, and so that's something that's often not discussed because we don't look at young people as having as much bodily autonomy as adults. Frankly, we don't look at even adults sometimes <laughs> having right. bodily autonomy. And so when it comes to people who are younger, including those under 18, we certainly don't look at that because we look, we, many of us believe that that all belongs to the parents, which is a very dangerous point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like a big project, a big project <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I'm continuing. I'm also, I'm excited to share that I'm also, you know, starting my manuscript for my book and I'm really nervous and excited and I know it's going to be um, a year's long process, and, but <laughs> I will say this, like I, I'm excited to really having started that because that was, you know, it was, it was a scary, it was a scary moment to realize that I wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited to share that, you know, just that moment alone was when I was like, you know what, I can do it. That's what I'm excited to really talk about too. I'm I'm excited about it. I mean, I know, you know, you're saying it's a years long process, but I'm excited to read it now. So you've got a reader, however long in the future. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, <laughs> about the manuscript, about the book? I can actually. So a lot of it is, you know, I mean, I would say it's definitely a memoir, um, a personal memoir, but also it's a call to action too. Um, and so it's really about um, my own life and uh, being sexually abused by um, my stepfather and really why that all happened and what does that mean for Black male masculinity and sexuality and mm-hmm. gender and what that meant for me exploring the idea of being raped and sexually assaulted and actually realizing that I was attracted to men and how that was really a, a mental health concern for myself and just really exploring what I know so many younger people go through and younger Black men go to of all um, spectrums of sexuality, but really don't have the space to discuss. And I really wanted to discuss it in a way that wasn't counter to Black women and girls sharing their story. Um, because yes, while Black men and boys are raped and sexually assaulted, um, in my honest opinion, some of the ways that has been discussed have been harmful because it's been used as a counter narrative to things mm-hmm. like Me Too, as opposed to recognizing that many of us are harmed because of interpersonal and state violence. And it doesn't have to be either or or versus. Wow. Yeah. Oof. That's really powerful. Well, I wish you a lot of luck and a lot of love in diving into what I'm sure is to be a really powerful story and really powerful piece of work to read. So I'm excited for that. And I'm excited for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention that we haven't already discussed? 
nothing right now, but I am, let me tell you, I am so excited to be able to have this conversation with you and your viewers. I'm excited to always discuss Murray. And I really, really look forward to a future where every person knows who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited that we got the opportunity to talk. It's a pleasure talking to you, Preston. I love hearing about just your work is is so expansive and you really feel the love and the care and the personal connection when you talk about these things that you are passionate about and those are some of my favorite things to hear from people is I want to talk to people who are passionate and smart and ready to get out and do the work and make the world a better place especially for folks who have historically not found that to be the case. So yes. I, I, yes. I thank, thank you, you for coming on and, and sharing your voice. Can you let folks know where they can find more about you, where they can find your writing and uh, some of your work online? Of course. Uh, my website is PrestonMitchum.com, P-R-E-S-T-O-N-M-I-T-C-H-U-M.com. Also, they can find me on Instagram at Preston.Mitchum and on Twitter at Preston Mitchum. Wonderful. Yes, everyone, please go follow Preston, check out his work. And he has a lot of really wonderful takes on Twitter. And I, I like everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you're looking for a really wonderful person to follow on the internet, Preston is one of the best. And I, I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you this morning. So thank you so much for coming on. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was, I mean, I did that interview so long ago, and just hearing it again is always really lovely. I'm so glad that I got the chance to talk to Preston and that I got to see more of Polly Murray's life and legacy through his eyes, especially as someone who is continuing their work really directly at a policy level. So I hope that you all really enjoyed that, and I hope that Preston and, and what he brought to the conversation provides some new lenses for everyone. So let's lighten things up with some fun pop culture tie-ins. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you will see Polly Murray in some recent, some cool new recent things. There's a play by Lyndon Harris called To Buy the Sun, The Challenge of Polly Murray. And one of the most exciting ones just came out in January 2021 at Sundance. And that is My Name is Polly Murray. And that is directed by the same folks behind the RBG documentary. Mm -hmm. uh, we quoted from that one earlier, right? Yeah, that's the one that is um, Talia Bridges McMahon. Um, and then there's also a, the, a new documentary series on Netflix called Amend, The Fight for America. And that looks at the history of the fight for equal rights through the 14th Amendment. And it actually has a segment on Murray. Yeah, you heard Preston refer to that a little bit. Yeah. And so if you haven't watched Amend, I highly recommend it. Yeah. And uh, with that, we've come to the official end of our conversation over two episodes on Polly Murray. Someone I, I who started out as just a segment, a proposed segment. Just a segment. <laughs> in the queers and the civil rights movement section became two whole episodes on their own. I mean, I feel like that's very emblematic of them You keep peeling back the layers and there's just more and more and more. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's round things out with our How Gay Were They ratings. 
Aubrey, if you were to rate Polly Murray on our completely and totally not arbitrary at all scale of queerness, what is uh what would you give them? I think I would give them seven imps out of <laughs> ten dude vagabonds. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> seven out of ten imps. <laughs> awesome. Why uh, Why seven? Uh, because I like the number seven. <laughs> it's a good number. I think it's a good number. I'm fascinated with the numbers three and seven. I don't know. Talk to my therapist. <laughs> I like seven. <laughs> I like that number. What about you? What would you rate them? I think I'm going to give them 14 dogs named Doc which is something that we didn't get to cover. <laughs> they had a black and white dog named Doc. Uh, I'm going to give them 14 dogs named Doc out of... Well, actually, you know what? Here's what we'll do. We'll do 14 out of 20 because I do feel like, you know, they can't have their, their full total 20 out of 20 or 30 out of 30 or whatever number we want to give because they did have such struggle throughout their life um i really like your dogs imp, named dog. was that <laughs> i really yeah i really like i really like the imp yeah my gender is imp yeah I stole um, yeah <laughs> yeah but you know i gotta i gotta give it up to i gotta gotta choose the number 14 for, for so much uh so much work on the 14th amendment yes uh, Ooh, really making that see, work see that is real that's, that's a really better tie-in than me just saying i like the number seven yours is better <laughs> mine's just i like that number yours is better it's good is there is there anything that you want to kind of say in closing about Polly murray did you know much about their life before we started this journey what what is you know your big main takeaway from learning about them doing this i mean i think the big takeaway i have is that there's always so much more to learn you know you know like i said this before you know i went to school for political science Focusing on constitutional law and civil rights. I've got a minor in history. I'm supposed to know about civil rights. It's a thing I'm supposed to know about. And I had never heard of their name until last year, 2020. Mm -hmm. So there's always so much more to learn. And I think you can never underestimate the workers behind the famous speeches, behind the famous people. Don't underestimate the thinkers and the intellectuals that put the time in the library to build the argument. Because that's just as powerful as the speech or the person who gives the argument is the researcher. So I wish I had known about them. I think I'm going to incorporate them into some of my lectures for the future so that students that learn from me will learn about them. So what's your takeaway? What did you get out of this? I learned so much about the ways to work in the background and just I I'm so absolutely just floored with the sheer level of oh what's the word I'm looking for ingenuity from Polly Murray the fact that we have so many things we have the concept of intersectionality that could be attributed to them and I think it's also a really important lesson in how those intersections lead to erasure as well yeah. even with by both by both commu- by multiple communities by multiple yeah. communities and even with appropriate credit like we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg we have Kimberly Crenshaw who did straight out go there and say hey this was directly inspired by the work of Holly Murray Mm -hmm. this person predated these arguments 
And yet, you know, it really is only in the last couple years that their name is getting out there in a large way. And so I think it's incredibly important to look at it through the lenses in which the ways that multiple oppressions intersect to create erasure. Um, But that you can find some real beauty in uncovering what was lost. So I think that's, that's beautiful. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I, I will never, (laughs) I will, I will, you know, never be the same. So yeah, that is it for today's episode. You can find us online individually if you would like to learn more about Aubrey. I'm going to let her tell you where you can find her on all of the internets and socials. Oh, yes. All the things. The podcast is Southern Queries. Q-U-E-E-R-I-E-S. And you can just run all the podcasts. So southernqueries.com. My own writing is at aubreycalvin.com, and that's A-U-B-R-E-E Calvin. And I'm also on Twitter at aubreycalvin.com, and I gave the wrong Twitter in the last episode because I'm bad at social media. (laughs) (laughs) My Twitter handle is just my name, Aubrey Calvin, so... I mean, I'm, you you know, you just recently changed it. It's a fair I'm thing to... bad at social media. <laughs> I, but yeah, you could find me there. I'm usually talking about Star Trek and lamenting turning 40 and talking about homeschool Gen X stuff. So I'm over there <laughs> doing that. <laughs> and as always, I'm Lee when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and getting the best description of my gender I might have ever seen. I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and crying about Xena episodes on my couch. History is Gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay podcast, Twitter at History is Gay pod, and you can drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho's Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show, and more. We also have some changes that will be coming to the Patreon at some point before the end of this year, and we're looking for some feedback. So if you are a Patreon supporter and you haven't yet filled out our Patreon survey or given us a little bit of feedback through the comments, please feel free to go through there and tell us what you are interested in what you could do without. We are hoping to get some more sustainable and interesting things going on in that space. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join our amazing community of patrons. Thank you so much to everyone for your support. And as always, you can buy awesome merch at our History is Gay store. You just click on shop at our website. We also have some really beautifully done coloring book pages. And hopefully in the future, we will be able to put those together into a whole little booklet. And lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community. And so, Aubrey, I'm going to ask you now to join me in our wonderful closing. And I know that this will not be the last time that folks hear from you on this podcast. So (laughs) let's go for it. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer and stay curious.